This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed the Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector. And we are really delighted today to welcome uh, for our show one of my favorite guests, uh, David Smith. David Smith is the Guardian correspondent in Washington, uh, and we got to know him, of course, in South Africa, where he served uh, for a number of years as the Guardian's Africa correspondent, uh, in which he interviewed all manner of people across the continent, but spent a good portion of his time in South Africa. And despite everything in Africa, he kept a sense of irreverence and uh, amusement at, at things, which some days was probably a little harder than others. Um, and he's, uh, uh, in his spare time, he's, he's a playwright. I don't know if it's been produced yet. Oh, I shouldn't have let that one out. Huh? Okay. Um, and lives in Washington and watches, uh, the United States with the same wry amusement that I think he brought to South Africa. David, it's, it's a delight to have you with us today. Great to be here again. Thank you. Um, since we've last talked some months earlier, um, the U.S. Congress, uh, that August establishment of 100 senators and 435 uh, distinguished representatives has undergone something of a sea change, um, not the least of which uh, a number of Republicans of, uh, how should we say it, dubious provenance uh, have... <laughs> <laughs> have, have taken office and the Republican Party now has a very narrow majority in the House of Representatives. And in the Senate, the Democrats uh, have held on to have a one seat larger majority than they had before the election. Um, this all makes a very interesting and complex uh, stew for po- politics in Washington. The president, of course, has two more years to run. Uh, as um, uh, in his first term, and presumably if he has a second term, it will just be the beginning of eight years of, of presidency. But the big battle in Washington now appears to be, aside from what kind of measures the Republicans in the House will conceivably try to inflict upon the country, um, the question of the debt ceiling, which is probably an absolute mystery to most people, but which uh, stands to, if it doesn't get settled, to upend the government budget and roil the waters for uh, stock markets around the world and interest rates. And uh, if you believe the the apocalypse is coming out of all this to throw the world into a depression. Um, You've been watching this, I'm sure, very closely. What what does this mean? This this new Republican ascendancy, uh, in part. Yes, it's an important moment in um, certainly Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, he, of course, is a Democrat, and for the first two years, they have Democratic uh, majorities in uh, the House of Representatives and Senate, and. Um, Many would say he got uh, a great deal done on, on everything from uh, climate uh, to uh, some gun safety reform uh, to coronavirus relief. Um, but um, yeah, November last year, Democrats lost their majority in the House of Representatives, as you say. 
Uh, now for the second half of his first term, at least, Joe Biden faces a, a divided Washington with uh, Republicans holding a just a narrow 10 seat majority in the House. And, um, you know, that's always tough for any incumbent president. Um, I think we can expect those Republicans to try and obstruct Biden, try to throw spanners in the works with an eye, of course, on uh, the next presidential election in uh, 2024. Um, and what's unusual this time, of course, is that this is a Republican Party in many ways still shaped in the image of uh, Donald Trump, who was Biden's uh, predecessor. Um, and that Republican majority in the House includes some some pretty um, extreme characters, uh, really to the far right. Uh, some of them worship uh, Donald Trump. And um, we saw that play out in the very first week when uh, Kevin McCarthy was trying to become uh, Speaker of the House. And um, very unusually, for the first time in, in many decades, it turned into a very drawn-out saga. I think it was eventually 15 votes before he finally um got the um got the majority uh he was blocked by some of these very extreme right wingers and um i think they took a pound of flesh you know they there was negotiations he made all sorts of concessions to them in order to uh, to finally secure their support or at least get them to to not vote um against him and i think we're going to see that play out uh, certainly in some of them have been assigned to very powerful and influential uh, committees that are going to try and um, investigate Joe Biden and bring him down one way or the other. Um, and indeed, as you say, um, it's already manifesting itself in terms of Republicans and, and the debt ceiling. This uh, this issue, which I, I suspect actually you can probably explain the technicalities better than I can, but it's, it's ultimately about... Uh, the American government uh, paying its bills. Um, uh, it's like, you know, as if it's got a credit card and it it has to pay its bills by a certain date. Uh, it's already blown through that deadline. And, and right now, the uh, the Treasury Secretary is already using some extraordinary measures to, uh, to fend off um, a failure to pay those debts. Um, and she can keep that going until about uh, June or July, I think is the projection. By which time um, Congress could and should and would normally be expected to um, just simply lift the uh, the limits, the debt ceiling, and say, okay, we we can spend some more. Um, and uh, you know, not for the first time, but perhaps the most is more serious this time. Um, we have a standoff where Republicans are saying we won't do that unless Joe Biden agrees to cut uh government spending and they're not being that specific um certainly it could be a threat to uh social security you know part of the the welfare system could be a threat to to medicare uh, a, a health system um others maybe want to cut uh, defense spending on on the military uh, and having been through this a decade ago the biden administration is saying no this is non-negotiable uh, the debt ceiling is a constitutional duty. We we have to lift it. And uh, as as you touched on before, uh, failure to lift that debt ceiling, if America actually defaults on its debts, um, we're into very worrying uncharted waters where people say there'll definitely be a recession. There could be some kind of economic catastrophe and something that would reverberate not just through the United States, but uh, around the world. 
I mean, part of the problem with the debt ceiling is it's it's not a it's not specifically a constitutional requirement, uh, other than that the government is supposed to pay its bills, uh, and it was it was decided on as a mechanism not so very long ago as a way of guaranteeing that the government would issue uh, debt, that is bonds, to cover the cost of spending that's already been appropriated and in some cases already spent. Mm. And so it's it's kind of a red herring for Republicans or critics generally to say raising the debt ceiling is simply like handing $1,000 to the drunken sailor to go out and have a good time uh, or, or some version of that imagery. And the problem is that it, it it becomes a very convenient club to to hit uh, the Democrats and Joe Biden in particular now with you simply want to spend more money of the hard earned salaries of honest taxpayers uh, rather than okay we have to cover the bills that we have already appropriated for spending. But um, it's psych- psychologically, it's it, it's an issue. Yes, and, and I think the psychology is so much part of it in that, as you say, it's not in the Constitution. This is a an artificial construct, really. Um, there's certainly great rep- Republican hypocrisy in this instance because, as the Biden administration loves to point out, that the debt ceiling has been raised uh, 78 times since 1960, most of those by... Um, under Democratic administrations, um, three times during Donald Trump's administration, the debt ceiling was lifted without question. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats joined together to, to do that because um, they realized the awful consequences if they didn't. And uh, you could certainly question the way Donald Trump was spending money hand over fist. Um, so the same argument applies, but, you know, as ever, I think with Republicans, uh, you know, when when Democrats are spending, it's it's an outrage and it must be stopped. And as soon as Republicans get in power, you know, all that sort of fiscal responsibility, all that claim to small government um, goes goes out of the window. Um, the other point worth making, of course, is that some serious economists argue this has become Washington theatre. It, it's a it's a pointless exercise. The the debt ceiling should be abolished. Um, there's actually no real reason for it to be there and for it to create this very time-consuming, energy-consuming um, uh, battle that uh, that we now see is going on. It, it doesn't really serve a useful function. Well, it, it doesn't serve a useful function, but it's great theater to stand up in the, in the well of, of Congress and thunder about wasteful government spending and mismanagement and fraud and all the rest of it. We're going to take a quick break, and we come right back after a message. And I want you to start thinking about, oh, my goodness, you know, hide your head under the table kind of moment. The next presidential race is beginning to shape up already. Uh, I thought we just survived one. Now we have to get ready for the next one. But first, we'll go to this break, this message from our sponsors. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Welcome back. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And my guest today is David Smith, the Washington correspondent from The Guardian newspaper, Longtime uh, friend of Africa, but now 
uh, ensconced in his position in Washington, where he surveys all the madness in the United States on behalf of the Guardian newspaper. Um, just before the break, I said, David, please tell me, please, without hiding your head under the table, please tell us um, what's beginning to happen with the race for the nomination for the presidency in 2024. I mean, there obviously is a, a fight that will shape up among Republicans, but there may be one among Democrats, too. Yes. Um, now, that election, of course, will be November 2024, which in some ways feels a long time away. But on the other hand, it is next year. And the way American politics works, you would expect the the cycle to be underway by now. And, and indeed, it, indeed, it is. Um, firstly, on the Democratic side, of course, Joe Biden, incumbent president, normally you would expect him to run again. Uh, however, he is the oldest president in American history at the age of 80. Um, I talk to different people, I get different responses. Some say he's weak, he's old, he really struggles, he makes gaffes, he can't do this a second time. Others argue, you know, he goes on foreign trips, he still outworks everybody, he's still sharp. Um, I think the truth is somewhere in between, like, like anybody in their 80s, you know, he has good days and bad days, maybe as time goes on the, the bad days will start to outnumber the good days. But um, right now, I think he's in the driving seat. I think he's the favorite. He uh, had a very good midterm election. He's got a, a long list of accomplishments to to point to. So some would say more numerous than Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. And he also has the huge advantage of there is no obvious uh, rival on the Democratic side. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris um, is, you know, there is not a huge clamor for her to, take over from him. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is too young. Bernie Sanders is too old. Uh, there are some interesting governors coming up, but anyone would would represent a potentially huge gamble at a moment when Donald Trump still poses um, an existential threat to democracy. And that, that brings us to the Republican side. There's, there's only one official candidate um, so far for the Republicans, and, and that is Donald Trump also trying to uh make history to be you know first man for more than a century to uh be in office, lose the presidency and then run again and 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 win. Uh obviously Grover Cleveland the only other example a long time ago. Um and uh, he's certainly the only person in history to have been twice impeached and to have uh uh, allegedly instigated an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and to be to be running and facing myriad legal investigations too. But I went to his campaign launch at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida at the end of uh, last year. Many people, including me, said it was rather low energy and and flat and unexciting. But um, he confirmed he was uh, running. And uh, just this weekend. Uh, after a, what had been a sleepy start, he was actually hitting the campaign trail. He gave a speech to uh, Republicans in uh, New Hampshire, uh, which is uh, the first presidential primary state, and then um, had an event in South Carolina, which also has an early say. And he kind of unveiled his leadership team there, which included you know the, the governor of South Carolina and Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. 
Um, I came out of it none the wiser, really, whether Trump is going to win again or not. I think you could certainly make a case that um, the magic has gone, that the act has got rather old and exhausted now. He was recycling old lines. Um, but you could also make a case he did have some endorsements there. He does have me- momentum, fundraising infrastructure. This big email came out of the campaign saying how great he was, showing him on the, on the campaign trail. He's he's already stealing a march on other candidates. And um, the great unknown here is, you know, who will those other candidates be? Um, we just heard within the last day, really, that um, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, definitely seems that uh, she is going to, to run, even though in the past she had said, if, if Trump She's runs, then... Person, in that sense. Um, yeah. Um, she had said in the past that if Trump runs, she's not going to, but she's gone back and forth on this. Um, she's a, uh, she would, of course, be the, the first female president in American history if she actually won the election. Uh, she's also a person of Indian heritage. Um, Republicans might see her as a, as a way to bridge some divides and to try and make a statement that they are a, an increasingly diverse uh, party. Um, another figure from South Carolina, Senator Tim Scott, um, could also run. And then you have a, a list of others, former Vice President Mike Pence, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, of, uh, some other governors as well. And um, But the, the man to watch, uh, the man who's seen as by far the biggest threat to Donald Trump so far is uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida who uh, won re-election in a landslide last year by 19 percentage points uh, within Florida. And um, he has really struck a chord with the so-called culture wars issues and the idea of parental rights. So he talks a lot about uh, reducing the teaching of of racial history in schools, um, curbing uh, teaching of, of gender and transgender issues, um, he picked a fight with, uh, with Disney. Um, he had a so-called don't say gay bill, which was about education. Um, and, and even in the last few days, um, uh, he's, uh, signed legislation that, uh, effectively forces teachers to remove some, some books from their, their classrooms. I mean, it's effectively book banning and all this really plays very well with the, uh, the Republican, uh, base. Um, and, and, you know, the, Obviously, an appeal he might have is that at the age of 44, he's a much fresher face than Donald Trump. Um, and he doesn't come with all the, the baggage of January the 6th and the legal investigations and, and so on. Uh, then again, some argue he might have a glass jaw, jaw. He might not be very good on the debate stage against Trump. He, he also lacks a certain charm and charisma at the small scale events you need in states like Iowa and New Hampshire in the Republican primary when you're Shaking hands and meeting local politicians. So, uh, uh, I have to admit, as a, as a journalist, um, partly, I, I, I take your point about hiding under the table, but part of me is also quite excited about it because there's, uh, there's uncertainty. You, you don't know what's going to happen and whether Trump can pull it off again or, or whether his time is up. I, when I think of Ron DeSantis, I, the thing that comes to my mind almost instantly is here is a man in whose mouth ice cubes do not melt. He doesn't strike me as having a sense of humor about anything. Uh, he's got, he's got a sanctimoniousness and a righteousness about him that is, you know, that, that's, 
extraordinary and, and sort of reaches back to some earlier figures in, in American populist history. But the other side of the coin is he's whip smart. He's got this really attractive photogenic, telegenic family, and he knows stuff and he can argue on a factual basis on about things in a way that Donald Trump and perhaps some of the other potential Republican candidates could not do because I mean, he's got the education, he's got the, 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 the legal background, and he's not shy about telling us this. Um, and it's interesting that you use the word there, uh, sanctimonious, because as you probably remember, uh, I went to a Trump rally a few months ago during the midterms and, uh, Trump effectively declared war on, uh, Ron DeSantis by branding him Ron to sanctimonious. Absolutely. We all, know, we all know Trump loves his, his nicknames and, um, he doesn't always hit the target, but, uh, that, that may have been one of Trump's better ones because DeSantis is indeed, uh, sanctimonious. And, and yes, um, you certainly hear his critics say lacking a sense of humor, somewhat charmless, um, you can imagine him on a debate stage or speaking at a rally, you know, not quite having that, uh, charisma, that, that knockabout entertainment value that, uh, Trump does. Now, again, the upside of all of that is that people will say, you know, he's an executive, he's a governor. Um, he will bring us Trump policies, you know, hardline on immigration or these culture war things, but without the Trump chaos and, and, and baggage and mayhem, you know, he won't, uh, insult people gratuitously or he you know he can be trusted with the nuclear codes more <laughs> uh, <laughs> um that no, wouldn't hit me hard some people some people on, on the left worry that makes DeSantis actually more dangerous because Trump was so incompetent you know, he just couldn't get things done um whereas uh DeSantis may be more lethal maybe more deadly may actually know what he's doing and all these right-wing policies uh, he's currently enforcing in Florida, that might just be a laboratory for bringing him to the, to the rest of the country. And if you're, uh, if you're gay or black or a woman, uh, on issues like abortion, then, then DeSantis, uh, spells, uh, trouble. But, uh, yeah, we really don't know. He's not, he's not truly tested yet on that, uh, on that national stage. It'll be fascinating to see how he, uh, how he deals with the, the, the Trump attacks that are already, uh, starting to come at him. We're going to take another quick station break, but uh, while we're doing that, I want you to 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 be uh, ready to think about the topic, I guess, that we have no choice but to discuss this week yet again about America, and that's the question of uh, race and police and police violence and what all of this means in, in light of the, um, the death of... Uh, Tyre Nichols and uh, the funeral and the video evidence of five or six uh, Memphis, Tennessee policemen uh, basically beating the man to death in full view of video cameras, uh, regardless of whether the police were black and, and so was the victim. It says something about America, which is uh, frankly troubling. But let's take that station break and then we'll come back to you in just a minute. We're speaking with David Smith of The Guardian, and this is Brooke Spector, Deep Dive. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. 
And we are back with the Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and my guest is David Smith, the Washington correspondent for the Guardian newspaper. And just before the break, I asked him, like, I said, we really have no choice in the matter, given the, the way it's it's come across uh, television and newspapers and public conversation, barbershops and anywhere else, I guess. Um, the uh, the tragedy of the death of uh, Tyre Nichols in Memphis and the at the hands of the police and the way it encapsulates perhaps the fraught nature of policing in the country these days. David? Yes, yeah, a harrowing and horrific um, incident and, and obviously dreadful video footage of uh, Tyre Nichols being attacked by um, police officers. Um, it shows you, uh, in many ways how, how little progress has still been made in dealing with, uh, police brutality in the United States just, um, a couple of years after the, the police, uh, murder of, uh, of George Floyd. Um, in terms of the politics, uh, after Floyd's death, the, the main piece of national federal legislation is the, uh, George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, uh, which is backed by Joe Biden and Democrats. And, um, in 2021, it, uh, it stalled. It got blocked by, um, Republicans on, on Capitol Hill. Um, and that was a great missed opportunity. That act would, uh, do lots of things in terms of, uh, improved training improved accountability for police, um, awareness of uh, racial justice issues. It would end uh, qualified immunity, which prevents uh, police officers being sued by um, citizens. Um, it had a lot in it, um, but it did not get through. Now with Republicans, as we say, in the majority in the House, there seems even less chance of uh, that, that very necessary reform uh, taking place and and for example at the weekend um jim jordan a, a prominent house republican said um you know you cannot use the law to stop um evil and and some found that a kind of typical republican response that you know throw your hands up in the air that these are just uh, random acts that you can't do anything about and and kind of a, a denial of the existence of systemic racism in America. And what is happening with Ron DeSantis in Florida and with other governors across the country where they're actually trying to um, ban uh, educational courses about racial history in many cases uh, is probably just going to to make that uh, even even worse, I think. Um, now, all of that said, um, it has been noted that in this particular case in in Memphis, um, unlike the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, um, the incident was captured in great depth and detail by uh, police body cams and by surveillance footage. If you remember the the Floyd case, it was a, a passerby with a a mobile phone, a cell phone. Uh, the five officers were very, very quickly, uh, fired and, and charged with second degree murder. Some others have been suspended. And, um, the police chief in Memphis is, um, herself an African American woman. She's been very 
prominent and on the front foot uh, denouncing what happened, talking about the, the need for reform. Um, and you can you can look at this reaction in two ways. There are, there are some skeptics who would argue uh, justice was swift here because the perpetrators were themselves black. If the officers had been white, uh, would we have seen more of that knee-jerk response of the, the police chief trying to defend them? Uh, but there are others who, who find some hope in it that perhaps some lessons have been learned since the death of George Floyd and that, uh, you know, Memphis police were very quick, very transparent, um, to, uh, start on the journey of, of accountability and, and, and justice. Um, and, and for now, frankly, with things gridlocked in Washington, um, I think most of the initiatives we're going to see are going to be at the, uh, the state and, and community level uh, on police brutality. Let me turn your attention um, to another major issue, which will get entangled in congressional and Washington politics generally. And that's, of course, uh, we can't avoid it. There's a major war taking place in Eastern Europe. Uh, and this is a function of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the growing uh, participation in terms of our arms shipments from the U.S. and other NATO allies. But there is, at least as I read it, there is a degree of suspicion or even the beginnings of a kind of opposition on the part of at least part of the Republican Party to go down this road much further or even to support Ukraine generally. It, it, how do you read this? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm a little confused, um, because, uh, late last year when the midterm elections were underway, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who we've mentioned, who's now the House Speaker, I mean, he, uh, he said, uh, we should not be writing a blank check for Ukraine and, and that raised some eyebrows. Uh, probably more importantly, even, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican congresswoman from Georgia who is uh, a real extremist, a real MAGA Trumpy personage. Um, she talked about uh, not a penny more for Ukraine if we win the majority. And of course, Republicans did win the majority. And, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is arguably one of the most powerful people in the chamber now, uh, she's she's very close to McCarthy. He's promised to protect her. Um, she she has McCarthy's ear. Um, she appears to be strongly against um, supporting Ukraine, and and yet um, for the time being, it's it, it it doesn't seem to be coming to a head as a as an issue. Um, it could just be that uh, Republicans are so distracted by everything from the debt ceiling to Hunter Biden's laptop, Hunter Biden, of course, being the son of Joe, uh, and, and myriad other issues. I, I do wonder, as the year goes on, will there suddenly be a crunch moment when um, there's a Republican rebellion against the uh, the support for Ukraine? But um, but I, I suspect uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker himself, ultimately, if push came to shove, believes in the cause and certainly um Mitch McConnell his counterparts in the Senate the minority leader there has been pretty vocal in the necessity of supporting Ukraine for the sake of democracy uh, if anything he's argued Joe Biden is sometimes moving too slowly on on issues such as um 
sending uh, tanks, Abrams tanks, which uh, the US agreed to do last week, that that will take months and was mostly about uh, persuading Germany to send its own tanks as well. Um, but, uh, but you know, for, for now, and, and I was in the House a few weeks ago when Zelensky of Ukraine came to give us give a speech, and that was very well received. Um, for now, I think um, the, the 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 vast majority, the clear majority of both Republicans and Democrats, um, still still believe in this cause. Um, not least because you know they regard Vladimir Putin as a as a clear and present danger. Let me one other question. I, I'm, I'm going to try to draw this towards. Africa, because you're talking to an audience ultimately that is in Africa for the most part, although through the miracle of audio streaming and who knows what other technological ledger domain, uh, people can listen to this everywhere. Last week, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen came to Africa, three nations, Senegal, this country, South Africa, and Zambia, and her message to South Africa there seem to be a couple of parts to it. One that, yes, we're back. The United States is back, uh, after those regrettable four years of the, the, the Trump ascendancy. Uh, and that it's a partnership with Africa that builds on the, uh, the leader summit of late last year. Um, second, that it's a real partnership as opposed to simply a top down do what we say, but at the same time, um, there was a, a strong sense that the uh, the coal-based energy generation regimen for the world will change, and South Africa is supposedly going to get the first dose of the the, the equitable uh, fund uh, energy transition funds. And at further, I guess on the third hand, I mean, so we have first, second, and third hand now, three hands. Um, there was a, a not so veiled warning about South Africa getting itself into a little bit of a pickle if it violates the sanctions regimen that has been put upon against Russia as a result of the Ukrainian war. Did that get any play at all in Washington? I didn't see very much, but that I'm obviously here and not there. Uh, some of her message was received a little better than others, but it wasn't received uh, as it, as uh, largely as Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister's message was here, that we're buddies till the end. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, not much of it cut through. I mean, I was at a, a White House press briefing where our our mutual acquaintance um, Anita Powell of Voice of America asked the the press secretary about. Um, South Africa conducting uh, military exercises with uh, Russia, which, um, as you can imagine, the United States is not delighted about. And um, I think I think the word concern was used, which is about as strong as it gets in diplomatic uh, language. And um, and and certainly there's there's some interest in this uh, or curiosity about this ongoing notion of um, you know some in South Africa and other countries. You know, regarding America as the colonial imperialist and therefore we have to back the other side and let's remember what the Soviet Union did during the struggle and, and, and so on. And, um, um, some, still some mystification over that because I think, uh, many in America and Europe regard this as a fairly clear cut 
instance of uh Russian aggression and authoritarianism and uh Ukraine as uh, a, a force of democracy that needs to be um d- defended um but uh no i mean uh, th- there wasn't a great deal at this end about um uh climate issues so i mean certainly um the biden administration likes to point out that uh it passed the the the, the biggest climate legislation of any country anywhere in the world last year and uh and so and it's getting very big for example on uh, electric cars and the, the benefits of of those and 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 you know but reckoning with and dealing with that issue of well what about the rest of the world and uh what china is doing what south africa is doing is is obviously going to matter to the uh to the climate uh, crisis um uh, I think the the other thing uh, the other thing underpinning all of this, of course, is uh, you know Joe Biden's concept, his framing of a, a global struggle between autocracy and democracy, which feels very acute on a continent like Africa, where for years uh, China has been expanding its its influence and presence, and you can almost imagine a, at least an ideological third world war playing out in Africa, where the the sort of question is. Okay, uh, are we going to be in China's camp and go with authoritarianism, or are we going to be in America's camp and go with democracy? Which is oversimplification, but you you get the general theme of that. Um, and so every every American visit, I think, is uh, you know ha- has that as a underlying um, code, um, if if you like. Um, even though it's a fun ideal, and of course the Russia-Ukraine situation has really. Uh, become case study number one for Joe Biden's thesis about the the need for democracy to reassert itself in the 21st century. But the the real politic, the the hard truth is that uh, America does still have alliances, especially in the Middle East, but also in Africa with with countries that are are not uh, democratic, but are important. I shudder at the thought. (laughs) (laughs) There are some, there are some countries that the U.S. has thrown its lot in with who are not paragons of, uh, domestic democracy. And the argument obviously has always been that in some cases, international security supersedes, uh, the vote. And then in other cases, the vote is more important than international security. And uh, that's a tension that's been in American Politics, oh, I guess back, back as far as Thomas Jefferson and the, and the undeclared war with France. Now, um, and if, if you, if you put that to the administration, yeah, they would, of course, ac- accept that, uh, that sometimes these difficult decisions have to be made in the national interest and that, uh, they would say they're, that they're constantly pushing for lobbying for human rights and, and other things. And, and literally just in the, just this week, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, has been visiting Israel and um, found a diplomatic way to sort of stand alongside Benjamin Netanyahu, who now has arguably the most right-wing government in Israel's history. And you know, there are concerns over the, whether it, you know uh, what democratic integrity is going to survive there, and, and so on. And, and Blinken just very politely gave a long list of, you know. Both we and Israel are committed to human rights and accountability and transparency and, and so on. And just, just kind of put it out there that that's America's uh, expectation. And, um, um, yeah, they, 
they'll try and bring pressure in, in soft power ways if, if necessary. Yeah, somebody commented to me that it looked like uh, Tony Blinken had a migraine when he was doing all that. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, yeah. Who wouldn't, given uh, some of the members of that uh, Israeli cabinet right now and um, some of the some of the tensions there? Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I just reading an article today that's saying, you know, what will Joe Biden be remembered for? It's it's not this or that piece of legislation. It is the the big existential question of um, the survival of democracy in the 21st century uh, in the context of China's growth, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and and so on. There have been some significant setbacks, uh, but this, you know, Biden still has a chance to to pull it off. You know, even while acknowledging the contradictions of you know the alliances in the Middle East and elsewhere with uh, autocracies, um, uh, you you could certainly make a case so far that. Um, and I, some people do say to me, you know, Ukraine has been his finest hour in terms of. Uh, Surprising Putin and the world with, um, by, you know, by rallying NATO, which seemed to be weakened, um, by, by bringing the West, uh, together. And yes, the, uh, the opposition in, in Africa, the, the skepticism about the US, the, the pro-Russian sentiment is, uh, even more interesting in that context. Yeah. That was a good article. Brett Stevens wrote it. Am I right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I read it and I, and you know, I, I had this, this feeling that that Stevens was almost channeling Churchill when he, <laughs> when, he was, when he was doing that story, or or Roosevelt standing in the Congress uh, talking about days of infamy and all the rest of it. It was you know, will Biden manage to find that that hook? Yes, um, and he has you know surprised us in the sense that uh, uh, he's less charismatic than. Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, um, you would have thought his administration might be more of a, a caretaker and, and just the sort of let's recover from Donald Trump, let's recover from coronavirus. But, uh, as he and his outgoing chief of staff today love to point out, you know, past all this legislation, you know, the most since Lyndon Johnson and, uh, successfully building this alliance, um, against, uh, Russia, it, it, it turns out to be, you know, Bigger and more historic and more significant than uh, anyone uh, had expected. And um... but if you had to pick one thing to to say, have to watch out for this uh, over the next say half a year or so. What, what would it be in Congress? The the debt ceiling is the obvious one, but um, overall, I would say the thing to watch out for is uh, yeah the, re- the Republican primary election now because uh, that will tell us whether. Donald Trump, like, uh, like the villain in a horror movie, you know, you think he's been finished off, but is that, that hand going to come <laughs> rising out of the earth again? And, uh, you know, what, what I'm sure he would like to describe as the, the greatest comeback in political history, or were we going to be surprised by, you know, a, a, a new face? And, you know, th- this is one of America's two major political parties. It's, uh, careered off the rails in the last five or ten years it's embraced extremism it's full of conspiracy theorists uh it's, it's challenging fact itself it uh for the health of america it really has to regain its uh moorings and its center of gravity 
and um, the next few months, the primary election will, will give us some uh, some clues to that. Um, but I fear that we will not have a strong voice such as Liz Cheney arguing for a return to the the old Republican Party of centrism and moderation to a degree. Uh, I fear ultimately this this primary will still be a, a choice between different flavors of Trumpism, and uh, you know it may conclude that Donald Trump is no longer the the best uh, messenger for his own Trumpist message. It it may be somebody else now. You've given me um, things to think about, but not necessarily hope, David. <laughs> I guess that wasn't your job to give to fill me with hope. It was your job to help moor me to the ground so that I, I think I understand it better. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, as always. I hope we can do this again in, say, six months' time, and you can tell me just, just how close that is. The first primaries for the presidential election are basically just one year away. Yes, ex- exactly. Uh, as far as we know, I think the Republicans, it's going to be Iowa, Iowa again, Iowa caucuses, and then New Hampshire and the usual. But, on, but the, the Democrats are um, looking to change the order. Um, we might find out about that imminently. Um, so, uh, yeah, it could, could be a, a different system, which you know won't matter much if Biden is unopposed. Um, but uh, yeah, and then and then you know we'll have all the circus of the the rallies and the presidential debates and um, uh, a lot of what we missed in 2020 because of the pandemic. So it's going to be back to business as usual. Again, thanks very much. We're going to take our final ad break, and I'll come back for just a couple of closing words. Uh, This is Brooke Spector, The Deep Dive, and we've been speaking with David Smith, The Guardian correspondent in Washington. Banana, 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 banana. And this is Brooke Spector and The Deep Dive, and we're closing off this week's uh, program. We've been speaking with David Smith of The Guardian newspaper, uh, and I just want to add one comment from last week's conversation with journalist Ed Stoddard, uh, economic and finance journalist, when we were talking in our broadcast about the catastral survey system being offline, that, that important uh, piece of government mechanics that allow people to find out who and what company and where uh, mining houses have uh, exploration and mining rights for, and he was wondering why in the world an electronic system would be off during the Christmas and New Year's break. It turned out that it came back online just after we finished our broadcast, but before the broadcast itself had been released on air. That was extraordinary timing, but it was uh, fun nevertheless to note. That was the Catastral Survey. If you don't know what the Catastral Survey is, go listen to the podcast from last week's broadcast. This has been Brooke Spector with the Deep Dive, and we'll be back next week with another wash, another guest, uh, helping us in depth to look at important issues that matter.